the Human Rights Council, they found that Israel uses lethal force against Palestinians as on mere suspicion and as a precautionary measure. Mm -hmm. They haven't even found weapons. There are no investigations. This is this is official Israeli policy. They shoot to kill. And unlike in the United States, where we have right excessive use of force, racialized use of force against um, you know, black, especially black, but also brown, native, you know, communities. Um, in Israel, they defend it. Mm-hmm. They, they say not only defend it as an ad hoc moment, but they justify it as a policy so that they say they can do it again and again. And there are there is no oversight. Welcome to This is Palestine. I'm your host, Omar Vidar. On June 23rd, 28-year-old Ahmad Araqat was shot by Israeli soldiers on his sister's wedding day, following what appeared to be a car accident at a checkpoint near occupied East Jerusalem. Subsequently, Israeli authorities lied about Ahmad's actions after the accident to try and justify his killing, and they continue to hold his body, preventing his family from laying him to rest. Later, we will be joined by Ahmad's brother, Faisal, to tell us more about who Ahmad was. But first, we're joined by Ahmad's cousin and Palestinian-American academic and human rights attorney, Noor Araqat. She's an assistant professor at Rutgers University and the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. This podcast will relay some details of the killing of Ahmad Araqat, so discretion is advised. Noura, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Omar. So let's start with the incident itself. Um, Israeli occupation authorities claim that the accident was actually an attack and that Ahmad got out of his car and was heading for the soldiers after um, the accident and shared a blurred video. But then you shared on Twitter an unblurred version of that video that told a very different story. Can you talk a little bit about what that incident showed? Absolutely. So there's two things to say here. One is about the particular incident and the other one is about the context, right? And I think part of the work that's being done in order to obscure the violence that Ahmed endured is to not relay the context and to try to make this just an individual isolated incident. And so we're, we get into the details of, but what really happened and what's going on in this video when if you zoom out, the rest of the, sto- you know, the context tells you a story. So I want to uh, provide both with you. First in the video, Ahmed was at the container checkpoint, which is one of the most securitized checkpoints. And all Palestinians know this. They would not, you know, it's it's not the site that you would go to to try to attempt any, any kind of operation. It separates Bethlehem from Abu Dis, which are two Palestinian cities. Ahmed had just picked up his mama from a hair salon and was on his way to decorate his car, a rented car, 2016 Hyundai Accent, um, for his sister's wedding that evening. Uh, As he was pulling out, the car looks like from the video that it lost control and does indeed veer into the, the kiosk on the side where there were about four armed soldiers. Uh, He hits the kiosk, gets out of the car, unarmed, attempting to put his arms up. What we understand from the rental service is that there were no bullet holes in the car, meaning that the soldiers only began to shoot Ahmed and shot five to seven times when he got out of the car, when he was unarmed. Upon being on the floor, right, he was still bleeding out 
and had the opportunity to be resuscitated. The Israeli ambulance arrived within 10 minutes and treated the lightly wounded Israeli soldier and refused treatment to Ahmed, then refused access to the Palestinian Red Crescent Society or the ambulance, and then refused access to his father, who had shown up on the scene and begged to be able to approach his son. What um, the Israelis tell us, and, they, and, and he ultimately died after an hour and a half. And what, you know, Israeli officials say, this was an assailant, they had to shoot to kill, it was the use of defensive force, and yet so much of that needs to be parsed out, both in law and just in a moral question. On legal terms, it's important for the audience to understand that even if, even if this was an actual attack, number one, the soldiers themselves are legitimate targets. They are not civilians. This is not a terrorist attack. And Ahmed would have been a direct participant in hostilities um, and would have been a legitimate target as well so that they could shoot him if in fact they felt that he was an assailant. But even under those terms, uh, combatants who fall are entitled on land under the first Geneva Convention to uh, medical services. So even if we assume the worst case scenario, Ahmad, Ahmad should have been treated, right? Yep. Even absolute worst case scenario is he's engaging in an act of legitimate resistance against occupation forces who are present on Palestinian land, mm -hmm. and they still committed a crime against him by denying him medical service. Absolutely, absolutely. We have learned that lesson, and that is why if there are prisoners of war, they have rights and have how they should be treated. That is why those who wounded soldiers at sea or on land have the, you know, they are no longer legitimate targets and should be provided some medical relief. So that's just the worst case scenario. But what we've got going on here is something much, much more sadistic, which is the fact that what we, we, we take for granted is that Ahmed wasn't granted, you know, the benefit of the doubt of human error. He wasn't granted the fact that he might have been nervous at the checkpoint or that there was a malfunction in the car. If you look up Hyundai, there have been reports since 2011 in South Korea, as well as all over the world, about that same car malfunctioning. Right. But you don't get that benefit of the doubt when you are racialized as a threat, when you are securitized and boiled down to not being a subject and a human, but merely being an object in Israeli uh, settler colonial imagination as a threat that you then that then young kids from the day that they're born are raised to believe are, are, are raised to, to want to kill uh, Jewish Israelis. And that's why they live there and they're not really Palestinians. They don't have a resistance movement. They're not part of a freedom struggle. And that comes from the highest places of government in Israel as well. We've heard Ayala Shaked say that Palestinian mothers should be targeted because they birth snakes. I mean, this isn't, we don't have to look far for this. You don't have to be a scholar uh, to glean this racialization. What about the broader context? The broader context is that we know that Israel employs a shoot-to-kill policy, which basically endows it with the right to be judge, jury, and executioner with absolutely no civilian oversight. When Israel adopted this policy in um, May 2018 vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians in the Gaza March of Return, Israeli human rights organization petitioned the Supreme Court to say, this is a civilian protest. You cannot use lethal force. You must use you know, for law enforcement authority to d dispel uh, civilian gatherings. And the Supreme Court said, no, 
that civilians in these um, in these protests were an exception, but that it was in general, it should be assumed to be a military operation so that all those Palestinians can be killed so long as the military makes that decision. So they basically exercise, you know, a, a sanctioned excessive military deference just for me to be specific and not hyperbolic, right? They they blurred the line between a hostilities and a law enforcement paradigm, provided the military with excessive deference and sanctioned this policy. It's been reviewed in the Human Rights Council and at the Human Rights Council, they found that Israel uses lethal force against Palestinians as on mere suspicion and as a precautionary measure. Mm -hmm. They haven't even found weapons. There are no investigations. This is this is official Israeli policy. They shoot to kill. And unlike in the United States, where we have right excessive use of force, racialized use of force against um, you know, black, especially black, but also brown, native, you know, communities. Um, in Israel, they defend it. Mm -hmm. they, they not only defend it as an ad hoc moment, but they justify it as a policy so that they say they can do it again and again. And there are there is no oversight. Yeah, there there is no attempt to claim that these are isolated incidents. There, it's a defended attitude in general towards Palestinians. It's policy. It's policy. That's it. And and there's and and there's no punishment. There's no investigation. There's no reprimand. There's no internal protest within Israeli society, and there's no international protest. And what we're trying to do in Ahmed's case is not only um, achieve a modicum of justice for him, but also, you know, when, when Palestinians hear these stories, they always say, wala awal wahad, wala akhir wahad. He's not the first nor the last. We, want, we, we really hope that some of our efforts will make it so that he is the last. Yeah. He should be the last. You touched on something that I think is important about Israeli leaders' racism towards Palestinians and how that essentially Israeli occupation troops are conditioned to perceive every Palestinian as a threat. But it goes a little bit beyond that with this incident in that the official statement that came out from the army afterwards was that Ahmad got out of his car and was heading for the soldiers. Now, that's not just a matter of perception. This is just a plain, flat-out lie. And it's not the first time they've lied about Palestinians that they've killed. Not only are blatant lies told, but then stories are fabricated in order to continuously perpetuate this idea of Israel only uses force defensively. So in, in during the Great March of Return, one of the most you know, publicized incidents was the killing of Rezana Najjar, a 21-year-old uh, paramedic who was there in order to assist the wounded because Israel had a policy of using snipers from a distance of 300 meters on hilltops to, to target Palestinians. When um, she was killed, there was uproar. And the Israeli military took a video that she had, you know, made where she said that she was there on the front lines to be a human shield for the wounded. The Israeli military doctored that quote, so that it stopped after human shield and put out in the world that she said she was a human shield for Hamas. That's right. Yep. That was an interview that they edited and cut up. So not only is it doctored, but I also want the audience to think critically about 
what is at work here in terms of the discourse. The fact that they could say Hamas and all of our critical thinking, you know, functions are suspended because of all the things that we have been made to believe about Hamas, which merits a tremendous amount of scrutiny, which we're also working against in forms of knowledge production um, and activism, even if, as I am, uh, are really, really critical of Hamas are not supporters of it. I get accused of being its lawyer all the time. I'm not their lawyer. I don't support them, but I do know that they have rights and the right to use force by Palestinians against Israel is a sanctioned right. Every criticism of Israel essentially ends up being twisted as a defense of some, some kind of Palestinian action. And anybody who tries to insist that the blame ought to lie with Israel somehow ends up being accused of being a defender of, of Hamas or any other faction that is engaging in any kind of behavior you know, parts of it legitimate and parts that are not. Oh yeah, I don't, so two things, Ahmed. One is Hamas's use of force when they use indiscriminate weapons that don't have the proper technology to, to target, and they don't. Most of their rockets don't, cannot distinguish between civilian and military targets and are therefore reckless. Mm -hmm. That is illegal. I'm not saying that that, you know, any use of force is illegal if we decide to use the law on these questions. And then the second thing that I'll add and I've actually written about this in a paper that critically examines Israel's use of force in, in the Gaza Strip. The idea, and I do this in the book as well, but Israel has been claiming all its use of force has been defensive even beginning in December 1947 when they begin a targeted campaign against Palestinians and they, in the removal of Palestinians between uh, 47 and 1949, and they describe that everything they do from demolishing homes to taking over homes to driving out Palestinians from their lands are all defensive uses of force in order to achieve a military advantage against the Palestinians. Yep. And certainly now, as we see all of Israel's policies feeding towards the de facto annexation, it's very clear that this was never defensive and that the mindset was one of settler colonial expansion Obviously. I mean, it was clear to everyone leading up to this who was paying attention, who was informed of the topic, but now the pretenses have been dropped about that as well. But before we delve a little bit deeper into that particular question, I just wanted to go back to the question of Ahmed's body continuing to be held by Israel. And I know that he's not the only Palestinian whose body is still being held and whose family is denied the comfort of laying them to rest and mourning them and saying goodbye but there are over 60 other Palestinians who are also being held and that there is a petition against Tel Aviv University. If, if you can just shed some light about that subject in general. Yeah, Amma, this, this, this part is probably the most heartbreaking um, piece of it for the family, especially. Uh, we have been, today is day 18 since Ahmed was gunned down. And, you know, we can't even get to the point of holding Israel to account or asking for an investigation or looking at the car and the black box and, you know, turning it on its head because we have been fighting tooth and nail just to get Ahmed's body home so that the family can bury him and begin their healing process. Right. And so this is also part, this is also an Israeli policy that they have practiced, which is keeping the bodies of slain Palestinians hostage in order to make demands on Palestinians. Now they're doing a few things with this. Number one, sometimes they have specific demands that they're making with the families, which is that they wanna get more information. We'll give you the body back if you give us information about you know who's doing what um, in the Palestinian community, or we'll 
uh, give you the body back if you promise not to hold a, 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 a loud funeral or a public funeral so that it doesn't inspire others to continue to be involved. And then there's the more sadistic pieces of it, which is maintaining all the bodies in order to use in an uh, eventual prisoner exchange with Hamas, for example. Or in, in the, I think the most sadistic approach is, is they're, they're keeping the bodies to basically tell Palestinians, you know, surrender. Surrender. We will, we will make this painful for you even in the time of your mourning. We will make this unbelievably, excruciatingly hurtful to you. Um, and that's what's going on here. And the Israeli high court examined this question. Again, this is to highlight the entwinements of Israel's, um, you know, judicial, civilian, uh, and military um, branches. There is no distinction. The Israeli high court sanctioned this policy in 2019 and said, yes, we will defer to the military and how they want to use Palestinian bodies as bargaining chips. And... Um, and you mentioned Tel Aviv University. I also just want to highlight that where they're held, there's now 63 bodies held, the longest one since 2016. They're held at the Greensburg Forensic Institute, which is an affiliate of Tel Aviv University, um, also highlighting the entwinements of the Israeli Academy uh, and its settler colonial project. And that is why not the family, but friends of the family have, um, you know, called and, 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 uh, um, underscored the need for academic boycott against Tel Aviv University and beyond. And more broadly on, you know, there was a lot of, in, in this news cycle, there was a lot of talk about Israel's impending annexation coming up on uh, July 1st is when it was expected. And it looks like there was enough pushback against the announcement from a lot of people that Israel has held back. And Benjamin Netanyahu has not made the official announcement. But this really strikes me as more of asking Israel to simply conceal rather than announce this de facto annexation so they can continue to avoid making the hard choices on accountability. And tying this back to the killing of Ahmad, that Israeli checkpoint clearly has no business being there between two Palestinian cities. It's their part of Israel's illegal but ultimately permanent control over the Palestinian territories, right? Yeah, as you were, as you were, you know, setting up this question, you know, I... I kept wanting to say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. It doesn't matter. Um, de facto annexation already exists on the ground. Israel has been incrementally expanding its annexation. And what they basically got in terms of the pushback is if you continue to um, annex these lands, do it quietly, do it incrementally, uh, do it under the radar so that you don't, you know, earn the wrath of the international community. Um, and, and, you, one would hope that this is an, uh, you know, a, a moment of reckoning to, to reckon with how centrist policy, especially American um, centrist policy, liberal Zionist policy has brought us to this moment, right? They're the ones that have their hands up in arms and disgust that Netanyahu and um, Trump would be doing this as if it was some diabolical plan. And yet they paved the path to get here and are furthermore laying the path to continue it when they only condition, you know, um, suspension of uh, support for Israel or reprimand for Israel if the official announcement is made. Mm -hmm. And it also merits highlighting that that annexation is also continuing within Israel and, and within the green line and its undeclared borders. There is a pitched battle right now in Yaffa as, as residents of Yaffa are up 
in protest in arms against the demolition, the desecration of a Muslim cemetery in order to build a homeless shelter, an Israeli homeless shelter. Mm -hmm. They've already done the same um, um, in, in, you know, around Tel Aviv, where they built the Tel Aviv University parking lot. And they already did the same in Jerusalem, where they are, you know, the Mamilla uh, cemetery where the Khaladi family is buried in order without any irony to build the uh, museum of tolerance mm-hmm. so you know when we think about annexation the other way I've been highlighting kind of how this is the outcome of liberal policy I think the next step is is making it increasingly clear that this is this is Zionism this is precisely what Zion, Zionist settler colonization looks like mm-hmm. and and so it, it it's an it, continuous, um, insatiable appetite for territorial acquisition that mandates the removal, the dispossession, and the concentration of Palestinian natives. What we see in terms of checkpoints between two uh, Palestinian areas is precisely just part of the mechanism and the process of separating Palestinians from one another and containing them into uh, what are tantamount to reservations or Bantustans. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it seems it's no question that it is a continuous process, whether we're talking about post 67 borders or pre, that there is a continuous process of displacing Palestinians and maximizing the amount of land um, with, while reducing the number of Palestinians to the greatest extent possible. And, you know, for international law purposes, there is a distinction between the occupied territories and, and the pre 48 uh, territories. But certainly as a matter of Israeli policy, it looks identical. And I think that the tie between those is, is rather obvious. Uh, just in closing, I'm, if you, for people who want to support the struggle for, you know, Ahmed in particular, but not just Ahmed, all the, Palestinian, uh, all the Palestinians whose bodies are still being held by Israel, what can be done right now? Are there any efforts underway that people can plug into? Absolutely. So there's specific efforts that you can plug into and there's broader efforts that you can plug into. Most specifically, sign the petition for um, um, targeting Tel Aviv University, which is an affiliate of the Greensburg Forensic Institute, and amplify the calls for academic boycott. Even if this doesn't necessarily achieve boycott, you are achieving, you know, bringing to light the entwinements of the academy and Israel's settler colonial project. And, and, and right, shattering the mythologies of where we should be exercising greater restraint. Um, in regards to, you know, uh, other things that you can do, uh, we're submitting uh, petitions at the UN. And one of the most important things um, in, in, in supporting those efforts is making sure that the story of Ahmed doesn't die. What Israel banks on is that there are flare-ups of indignation that then subside and we move on to the next one, right? And it works because Palestinians are exhausted. And so one of the things that you can do is just make sure to not let this uh, fall out of, of, of attention. You know, don't move on to the next thing. Uh, hold this up, hold the story of Iyad al-Halla up, hold the story of the Palestinians who are held um, in hostage after death up. And then more broadly, just keep on keeping. This is part of our, you know, liberation struggle. And, you know, whether you're doing that work right now in the movement for Black Lives or you're doing it, you know, in the indigenous struggles or you're doing it in Hawaii on the Mauna Kea to protect them or uh, you're doing it 
um, to, to end famine um, in, in Yemen and dis uh, preventable diseases, all of those are connected to this. And, and what Palestine does for us is offers us an opportunity to demand you know, an end to imperialism, defunding the military, and achieving a, a different world possible. And we can echo that regardless whether you're working directly on Palestine and Palestine solidarity work or you're working in other movements, they're all connected. Mm -hmm. And we'll be sure to link to the resources you mentioned. You were just listening to Noura Rekhat, Palestinian American academic and human rights attorney and the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Noura, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Amar. And now from East Jerusalem, we're joined by Faisal Araqat, who is Ahmad Araqat's older brother. Faisal, I'm grateful that you're speaking with us today through what must be a very difficult time for your family. Before we get into the killing of your brother, I want our audience to know a little more about the kind of person Ahmad was. How do you remember him and what should the world know about him? Uh, thank you for having me, Omar. And I don't know what is the time there. Here is the evening, so it's a good evening. Mm -hmm. And Ahmed, he is uh, my youngest brother. Uh, he's 26 years old. He was a young man with great dreams. He had his own private business, which is making, uh, you know, advertisement in the shops and restaurants. And also he worked uh, making the decal. Yep. And he's supposed to get married on May, but because, you know, of the pandemic, he delayed his wedding to September. Mm -hmm. He was he was popular he was popular in his village, and he loved his country. I and and I remember one day, uh, I asked him if he would like to go to United States to work there with his uncle, and his response to me was, "This country needs us, and I'm not going anywhere." So he loved his country and he loved life, and he was, as I say, I, I said, uh, he was a young man with great dreams. I'm curious if you can describe. What life is like without him around your family right now? Uh, Ahmed, you know, our life now without Ahmed, you know, it's uh, difficult. And especially to, to my mother and my father, they are, you know, they lost one of their uh, children. And it's very, very difficult. I, can, I, I see him every day before I sleep. And when I'm talking to anyone, I see him, I see his face in front of me. So I can't, I can't describe to you what, what I'm feeling because it's very, very, real, very difficult uh, feelings, really. Mm -hmm. Can you take us back to the day that he was killed by Israeli occupation soldiers? Um, what happened? How did you come to hear of the news? Can you just tell me about that day and what was going on? So uh, it was a, a, a wonderful day, a very nice day. We were, we were pre preparing ourselves to our uh, sister wedding. Uh, our youngest sister, she has... Uh, her wedding in that day and I came back from my work I, I took my shower and I wear my long suit and I went to my father's house to, to be ready to receive her uh, Beyonce family because it's you know in our culture the Beyonce uh, family of my sister uh, of, uh, my sister mm -hmm. they have to come to our uh, to my father's house to take uh, my sister before the wedding starts before two hours of the wedding so they can take her to the to the whole uh, hall of wedding where the wedding will be, mm -hmm. uh, and we will the the place we will we the the place where we will celebrate our wedding. Yep, the wedding venue. So I, mm -hmm. 
Yes, exactly. I got ready and I went there. I, I saw many people in front of my father's house, and I thought I thought these people are uh, the family of uh, my sister uh, Beyonce. Mm -hmm. So I opened my my window and I asked first person, "What's going on?" And he didn't respond to me. And I asked the other one, "What's going on?" And even he didn't respond to me. So I felt there is something wrong. You know, I felt. There, there, there's something happened, and there is something wrong happened. So, I, 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 I knew then the, the, the Israeli occupation killed my brother. You know, it was chucked for me, and I started driving. And believe me, I didn't know where I drive. Just I drive for almost 20 minutes, and I didn't know where I'm going. Mm. It was really difficult. It was really difficult, and uh, may, may God bless his soul. I mean, um, this must have been very difficult for your sister as well on her wedding day. What's your sister's name, by the way? Iman. Iman. I mean, she was expecting to celebrate her wedding on that day. Yes, it and was then... the same day. It was yeah. the same day. We were very happy and we were preparing ourselves to celebrate with, with her. And, and that incident happened. And, and this happened. This, you know, this, it, will not, it will not happen in any in any place in the world except Palestine. Except no. Palestine, you can see the wedding and funeral at the same time because of the occupation. They don't want us to be happy. I mean, Israeli authorities, we know for a fact that they lied about Ahmad's actions when he left the car. They claimed that he was heading for the soldiers after he got out of the car. But the video clearly shows that that was not the case, that they shot him as soon as he tried to get out of the car. But they're still yes. insisting in their public narrative that he's a threat. How do you respond to the Israeli accusations? You know, if, if they are, uh, if they are uh, right for what they are saying, why they pixelated the video when he left the car? Because he was raising his hands in the air. And they don't want to show the international, uh, the, to the world, sorry, that he was raising his hands and his hands were empty and his hands were in, in, in the air. So uh, he was unarmed and... You know, when he left the car, they start uh, fire at him immediately. So they didn't allow him even to explain what had happened. Mm -hmm. And after uh, they shot him, they left him on the ground bleeding for one hour. Okay. And mm -hmm. they, they didn't allow the Red Cross and Red Crescent to rescue him and help him, which is against Fourth Geneva Convention. And, and, and to prove to you that Israel, is not democracy as they are claiming. Israel, it's not democracy, it's, it's ethnocracy. In 1995, the prime minister of Israel, okay, Yitzhak Rabin, was assassinated by Yel Amir, who is an Israeli. Mm -hmm. That guy, he fired three bullets against their prime minister, and he assassinated him, and he killed him. And he has many, you know, bodyguards around him, and he has many special forces around him. And they didn't shoot that guy because he was Israeli. Mm -hmm. Okay? So that's the difference. And because Ahmed was Palestinian, they shoot him. That's, that, that's what they are educated for. And that's what they are, uh, have been learned to kill the Palestinian as much as they can. So, they can, so that's what we are facing as Palestinians. Are, we are facing ethnic cleansing by this Israeli occupation. Ethnic cleansing and the complete and total disregard for Palestinian life, as unfortunately we have seen with, with many in incidents leading up to this. 
And in addition to that, I know that Israel is holding Ahmed's body and refusing to return it to your family so that you can lay him to rest. In fact, Ahmed is just one of dozens of Palestinians, over 60 in fact, whose bodies are being held hostage by Israel. Can you talk about the... Yep. Can you talk about the impact of what has that has been like for your family and if you guys are fighting to get him back? You know, it's hard, especially to my mother and my father. And I believe that uh, we will get his dead body back and we will bury him. Uh, by the way, uh, by the way, you know, the Israeli occupation, they think by implementing this racial discrimination and racial delineation and holding the dead body and uh, implementing the segregation and apartheid okay, against the Palestinian, they think that they will force us to give up and to leave our country, but they didn't know their actions are only igniting the fire inside us to stand hard and march forward until we get our freedom. And for the, the, the second part of your question, if, if we try to get his body back, yes, we tried. Uh, I, 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 uh, I signed for uh, Red Cross. I signed for him paper that to, to bring my, 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 my brother did body. And we, uh, we spoke to many private organizations. Uh, and we spoke to many organizations which uh, they are uh, uh, specialized in the human rights. And also the uh, negotiator, negotiator uh, Cyberkat, is doing his best to... Uh, by talking to many organizations uh, and to Europe uh, Union to bring his dead body back, and not only his dead body, my not only my brother dead body, the sixty-three uh, dead body which I spoke about. And mm -hmm. by the way, today my mother she will uh, send letter also to United Nations. Yes, a Human Rights Council. We will. Uh, she will write the letter today, and we will send the letter today to the Human Rights Council. And certainly, I hope this effort is successful. I know that there is a lot of energy right now, people who are calling out Israel for this absolutely despicable and inhumane policy of holding people's dead bodies for absolutely no reason, just to use them as bargaining chips. It's, it's against the human rights. Absolutely. Obviously, Palestinians in their lives face absolutely horrendous human rights violations by Israeli occupation forces, and yes. then... They're not this even scared of it in death. We are facing this every day, Omar. Mm -hmm. Every day. Yeah. We are facing this every day. Is there but a message? We have, we have our voices and we have our right and we are not going anywhere. And then just in closing, do you have a message to the world on behalf of Ahmed and all of the Palestinian victims of, of the Israeli occupation? Yes. I'm asking the United Nations to send one team consist of uh, members of the United Nations, okay? Uh, I don't know how many, how many members they want to send, but I want them to send a team to visit Palestine to see for themselves how the Israeli occupation are treating the Palestinians and how Palestinians are affected by this apartheid system, which is implemented by the Israeli occupation against the Palestinians. So they can judge by themselves and they will recognize that Israel violating the international law and the declaration of human rights the universal, sorry, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. So we are seeking the international community to help us and allow us and our kids to walk free on, on our own land. Very well said. Certainly there is a lot of increased awareness about the injustice imposed on Palestinians by the Israeli occupation. 
and it is time to move beyond simply knowledge about this and criticism, but actually creating real accountability for Israel. Allow me to say one, one just small example Absolutely. about apartheid, which we are facing here in East Jerusalem. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they, they built a wall which is 10 meters high, and that will divide Jerusalem. And by the way, President Trump always saying that Jerusalem undivided. Jerusalem is divided by 10 meters wall, okay? Mm-hmm. And that wall is forbidding me to go to worship. I'm living in East Jerusalem. I'm living in East Jerusalem. It's only five minutes by, by, on foot to, to, achieve, to, to, to arrive my, my Al-Aqsa Mosque, but they didn't allow even me to go there. And by this wall, it's 1995. I used to go to my school in, 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 in center of Jerusalem, okay, on mm-hmm. foot. But uh, 2003, they built that wall. And I was, uh, you know, I was walking with my son on the roof of my house and uh, I show him my, you know, I told him my school is behind that wall. He said to me, he's five years old. He said to me, Papa, take me to your old school, show it, show it to me. I said, I can't take you now because of that wall. And do you know what was uh, that kid respond? What he responded to me? Mm-hmm. He responded to me, Papa, let's go and break that wall and show me your old school. So I believe that one day this apartheid will not remain and this, and we, because we are in 21st century and I don't know why this uh, Israeli occupation are dealing with uh, Palestinians like this. But I believe that one day we'll have our freedom. You were listening to Faisal Araqat, brother of Ahmed Araqat, who was shot and killed by Israeli soldiers on June 23rd. His body remains in Israeli custody. Faisal, I hope that there will be justice for your brother and for the countless victims of Israel's occupation of Palestine. Thank you for listening to This is Palestine, a podcast brought to you by the Institute for Middle East Understanding. The IMEU is a nonprofit focused on giving you access to untold stories, facts, and expert sources on all things Palestine. For more information, please visit our website at www.imeu.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the IMEU. Please don't forget to subscribe. I'm Deanna Butu. Thanks for listening.